the first step to inclusion is to be counted. And we don't actually have good counts of informal transportation. Part of the work is to both map and acknowledge the entrepreneurship and to provide scaffolding for that. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I learned a lot from speaking with Benjamin de la Peña, who has many years of experience in urban development, informal transportation, and agile cities. He was the first ever Chief of Strategy and Innovation for the Seattle Department of Transportation, and he instigated the first ever citywide public life study to measure vibrancy and understand how people use the right-of-way as public space. He chairs the Global Partnership for Informal Transportation, writes and curates a fortnightly newsletter called Makeshift Mobility, and serves on several boards, including the U.S. Advisory Committee of the Institute of Transportation and Development Policy. I was introduced to Benjamin by Gina Lucarelli from the United Nations Development Programme, whom I interviewed for Episode 7 of this podcast, all about accelerating sustainable development. She told me about Benjamin's unique work and that he sees the beauty and reality of informal transportation, and sure enough, he really does. So I started out by asking him, what is informal transportation and why does it matter? Enjoy. People who travel would remember going to, say, India and taking an auto rickshaw or going to Bangkok or anywhere in Southeast Asia and seeing a tuk-tuk. If you visited the Philippines, there are jeepneys. If you've been in Nairobi, you'd see matatus or haflas in East Africa, and if you're in West Africa, it's danfos, or there are taxis in South Africa, colectivos in Latin America, or in Indonesia, it would be, or ojeks. So they're all over the place. They're privately provided public transportation, loosely organized, usually regulated the wrong way, but very, very ubiquitous. Like I said, though, they're global because in New York City has the dollar vans and they serve areas Mm -hmm. that the MTA, the Transportation Authority, don't serve. Or in East Europe, you have the Marstus, which are vans that serve Mm -hmm. routes uh, privately provided. So they're everywhere in the real world, but very much a not a creature in regulation and planning and transportation and policy investments. How does that informal transportation come about? Usually it's the same sort of history, right? You have a fast-growing city, usually with colonial experience. There are racist stones to it. The elite serve only the areas that matter to them, the white city or the rich city. Uh, There's some investment in transportation, but usually it's not well done or well maintained, or there's always this neoliberal burden of transportation has to pay for itself, except that In very, very few cities of the world does transportation actually make money just out of transportation. So they're all over because people need them and they serve not just a transportation purpose, but a freight purpose too. Every city that's growing in the world would have some sort of plan or set of plans or maybe iterations of plans of what their future looks like. 
Uh, and strangely, if you look at the renderings, right, the wet markets, the souks have disappeared, the auto rickshaws have disappeared, the informal settlements have disappeared, and they're replaced by malls and shiny skyscrapers. And in many of these cities, up to 80% of the economy is informal. So there's that disconnect there. And in fact, the word informality is inadequate, right? Because it then makes you ask, well, what's formal transportation? For the sake of completeness, then, how would you define formal transportation? Actually, that's my contention, that you shouldn't define something by what it's not. There are other words we use. Paratransit Mm. is used outside of the U.S., but that implies some sort of semi or quasi legitimacy, right? So like a paralegal is not a lawyer. So is paratransit not transit, even if 60 to 70% of your population used it? Or sometimes uh, India likes the term intermediate public transportation, uh, meaning it's somewhere between things, right? But they're not clear what it's between. I-, I think the lack of a good term just shows how ignored the sector is. Is one of the things that the informal transportation sector have is that there's no kind of centralizing authority that is controlling all of the operators. It is not centrally controlled by a firm or a set of firms. And they pretty much operate the same way in that the government regulates the service by providing permits and franchises to operate particular routes. The payment systems are the same. Someone owns a vehicle, rents it out to a driver or drives it themselves. Uh, And if they're renting out to a driver, the pay system is you pay a daily rent to the operator and you uh, you as a driver, uh, whatever you, your earnings is whatever is on top of that, which means that they compete for passengers. Uh, In many cases, they've atomized to maybe an operator will own one vehicle or two, at most five. So can you give an example of a city or a few cities where this works really brilliantly uh works brilliantly you have to qualify right it works for the people who use it even in cities that have formal transportation like mexico city right a city of about 20 to 22 million people uh they have light rail they have subways they have really good bus rapid transit up to 74 percent of public transportation trips are taken in these informal transportation modes the colectivos or the minibuses Uh, so they work for people in terms of being able to get around The problem is that they are, again, second-class citizens in policy. They're not given priority. They're not given investments. So they struggle, and it takes a lot. uh, People who use them usually spend more time in transportation, and that's connected to the way we think about our transportation systems and what they're supposed to do. Uh, After about 100 years of the private car, right, that's what we prioritize in most of our cities. So public transit whether it's formal or informal, is never really prioritized, which means they don't serve the city as efficiently as they could. And that's what we're trying to change, right? One is for cities and policymakers and governments to acknowledge that this is your transportation system uh, and you need to invest in it. I did quite a bit of work in Colombia a few years ago, uh, in particular in Bogota and Medellin. And there was a famous quote uh, from a mayor of Bogota, I can't remember which one, about 10 years ago, who said the sign of a civilized society isn't one where poor people drive cars, it's where rich people take public transportation. You must have heard that. That's Enrique, that's Enrique Peñalosa. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, He also famously said that, you know, when it comes to public transportation, giving giving them priority, the technical questions are solvable, 
giving public transportation priorities a political question. I'm sitting here in London in the UK, which at one level has a, a great public transportation system and integrated network, but the city's ground to a halt with COVID and, and you know, it's, it financially doesn't function w- without the volume of people traveling through the city that, right. that uh, there was six months ago, 12 months ago because of the, the current crisis. And where's the direction that we're traveling uh, <laughs> in terms of informal transit? We don't know yeah. yet, right? Because you're basically emerging out of a system that neglects or treats with disdain informal transportation system. Uh, in many cases in the last two years or so, bus rapid transit systems were very, very successful. As You've been to Bogota, right? The Transmilenio scaled what uh, Jamie Lerner did in, in Curitiba. Uh, and then that was also taken into Mexico City and many other places. And they're great, right? But even the people who advocated for bus rapid transit at the time Imagine that once you set them up, the collectivos would disappear. They don't. People still need them. And, and whatever formal transportation system you put up will not be able to reach the expanse of cities. But there's some very interesting things happening. Jakarta, which had, now has the largest bus rapid transit system in the world, TransJakarta, is integrating the minibuses into their system, both financially in terms of payment systems and also route-wise. So it's interesting to see what that looks like. Mexico City is having another goal. I think their third time at trying to reform. Bogota tried to formalize with some success, uh, and it was asking the minibus operators to replace vehicles, paying them some money. Uh, But all of that is succeeding or failing depending on the political outlook of a city or the national government in one, acknowledging that this is valid transportation and committing to actually financial sustainability of these systems. We do know that we need to leave the current world as it is and figure out a future world where uh, informality and informal transportation is a valid part of the transportation system, not just in real life in the way you treat it, but the way resources and regulation and management flows in the city. So is mobility a basic human right? Do we need equality of That's very interesting. Uh, Mexico actually has a pending amendment to put mobility as a right in their constitution. In order to function in a city, right, you need to be able to get around. And whether it's a 15-minute, I should be able to walk around safely or take a bike safely or cross the city. So I would say, personally, yes, it should be a right in the same way that housing is right. You mentioned earlier kind of racism embedded in the transport infrastructure. I'm sure I read something a while ago about sort of sexism being embedded in transport Mm. route planning as well. A lot of men commute in and out of the center, whereas women travel more around the peripheries of the urban area. And so and yet we optimize for the men, for the commuters. So, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about sort of equality and the way that it's physically embedded in the transport infrastructure. That's connected to the invisible woman, right? Mm. Uh, How the data we gather from everything from medicine to vehicle safety, you know, bases it on the 5758 standard male so that you know even the way we do seat belts or the way we test cancer drugs are all based on a standard male model and it's the same thing in transportation i have a friend scott bernstein who runs the center for neighborhood technology in chicago that had showed very interesting research about downtown congestion when they started talking about it in the 20s was about pedestrian congestion in the sidewalks Uh, And then somehow it became vehicle congestion. And what they were trying to do was to get more buses downtown. And the only argument was, well, lots of workers go downtown. So let's plan for that. 
the peak hour surges at that time were about the men going to work. And so all of transportation planning has been involved in that. And again, like you said, there's the traveling in the periphery, traveling from home to neighbor to grocery store or to the school or trip chaining. That's absent in a lot of transportation planning. Which cities manage this better than others? You have to look at the cities of Japan. So Tokyo, right? A city of what? A mega city of 38 million people. And yet it's one of the easiest cities to get around because of mass transportation and the bus system, right? And the small bus system. Uh, what's interesting about Tokyo, right? They share it with Hong Kong, is they fund their transportation through real estate. So the transportation mm. companies, they went through a period of privatizing and then renationalizing, are also real estate developers. And so around stations, they have a program called uh, R plus T, real estate plus transportation. They develop real estate around a station, both to pay for the station and to pay for the services. And what that does is it creates density around it. And then you have services, right? The revenues from real estate pay for the services. Hong Kong does exactly the same thing with its MTR. Singapore does something different. They pay for all of the capital investments and the rolling stock, and then they just lease it out to private companies. I think what that frames is that transportation is such a critical part of the way our cities operate. And it's a mistake to say that transportation should pay for itself because it creates value for the city. So what you need to do is capture the value it creates and have that pay for the transportation. In Seattle, we have a what they call the Seattle Transportation Benefit District levy that is partly a sales tax, partly a property tax that generates $50 million a year. And we use that to buy more bus service. And as a result, we are one of the, I think, three cities or so, a handful of cities in North America, where transit use has increased, at least pre-COVID, over the last uh, 10 years or so. We need to shift our paradigm, say, we need to pay for transportation, because a lot of EU countries do that. And then as we pay for transportation, then we change the rules of the game. We change the performance metrics. We change what we look at and what we measure. And then, therefore, we deliver a different type of transportation system. In the UK this week, there's a big announcement where they're talking about changing the formula by which they calculate infrastructure investment. Mm-hmm. And historically in the UK, the big projects come to the south. They're sort of calculating it the wrong way around. They're calculating it where the house prices are higher now rather than where they might be higher in the future, right? So how has all of this changed in 2020 with COVID? And you know, the business model for transportation is just collapsed. If we're talking about informal transportation, it's an opportunity if cities, if governments take it. So the big formal companies are suffering as it is, right? Because ridership is down, and but you have to pay your workers and you have to keep things clean so your costs are up. So they will need an infusion right, of resources. And they have been asking for it, and rightly so, right? Whether you're TFL or you're New York's MTA, you are suffering, you need that cash infusion. In cities dominated by informal transportation, they're all individual Operators, right? They're in real trouble because they already live in precarity. At the same time, the cities have ground to a halt. So this all goes back to how cities treat them, right? So if you're treating them as small businesses, then you're saying, okay, you can't run because you're going to be a transmitter of COVID, which the recent studies show that if you do it right, transportation doesn't actually become a spreader. But you're controlling them the wrong way. So therefore, now they're in starvation. At the same time, your, your urban economies can't recover because people can't get to work. And the mm. people who can stay home 
are probably not earning minimum wage, right? So they're doing okay, but the people who have to do service work or manufacturing work, they need to get to factories. They need to get to the stores. And if they can't get there, then the economy can't restart itself. And, and more importantly, households don't have income. If you choose a different frame, right? And you think transportation is a utility. So people have to have transportation. How do you pay for the utility? If we did electricity and the quality of your service of electricity was dependent on how much you were paying for it, then if you're poor, then you maybe get an hour of electricity a day. So yeah. you can't treat utilities that way because people need it for way more. Uh, and so you balance out the system according to larger goals than just simply mobility and transportation. I'm very sympathetic to that. But, you know, just playing devil's advocate, that sounds like a kind of a socialist redistributive kind of model of kind of public transport. And so some people would object to that, wouldn't they? How do you respond to those sorts of challenges? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the question that we boil it down to is what do you measure? Mm. If you measure the, ve- the movement of vehicles, which is what our transportation systems do now, then you prioritize mm. how many vehicles can I move? Which means it's going back to our earlier, your earlier reference, right, to Enrique Peñalosa. He says, in a democracy, a bus that carries 80 people should have more priority than a car that carries two people. And with three car lengths, right, a, a carrying 80 people, a bus should have way more priority. It's the same thing with informal transportation. So a jeepney carries 20 people, you would need about five cars, full cars, to be able to carry the same amount of people. So what is redistributive now is those people who can afford private transportation get more in both infrastructure capacity, right? More lanes and and priority for them and investment because we don't question road investments to try to solve traffic. They never do. And until you then start putting the right costs on our transportation infrastructure, like London's congestion pricing, which you then say, okay, we don't want you to take your private car because it clogs up the system. It's an economic mechanism, right? So if it's a high demand, then price it the right way. And then the, the things that we want to give priority to because they take up less resources, then we give resources to that. And what about the rise of the likes of Uber and Lyft and those private providers yeah. creating dynamic demand? How does that influence and affect I, I mean, the, two, this system? Two things. There's, there's something to learn from ride-hailing technology and the algorithms they have. It's about a decade or more now, right, of ride-hailing. And what's very clear is they're actually increasing congestion. There was just a research out on what was happening to ride-hailing and transit in Chicago, and the propensity to use ride-hailing is more associated with higher household income than it is the availability of transit. So you would use it whether if, if you had higher incomes, whether or not you have transit available. So we need to balance that out and say, okay, there needs to be a societal cost to the use of both vehicles, whether it's privately owned, your own car, or privately provided in a car model, right? One of the things that they're upgrading in your own city, right, is that when they did congestion pricing, the Ubers were allowed to come in and out because they were like service, but now we realize they congest too. So now we have to start charging them differently. And it's the same way. So, But on the flip side, there is algorithms and system knowledge that we would need to learn from. One of the projects I helped initiate and funded about seven, eight years ago was a project called Digital Matatus. And it was a project by University of Nairobi, Columbia University, and MIT to map the Matatus. The Matatus are public transportation vans in most of East Africa. 
to map out their routes. And prior to that, there was no map of the routes. They were just franchises that the government could give with uh, route descriptions. And they put that data onto Google Maps and in digitized form, and there were apps that developed out of it. Uh, so there's, I think, a technology la layer that clearly has to come on to make the system more legible for users and legible for managers. All of that has to be managed mm. with privacy issues, of course. Uh, but there's something we can learn from the efficiency of that. There is technology that is going to help understand and manage the system in a different way. So how do you do that kind of system-wide design without a sort of central kind of government transit authority other examples where you've seen that work well you still need that you, you need you still need a central manager for the system right except that you have different management tools you don't go and manage the internet the way you would have managed the mail service right one of the new things that happened to the internet was it was very distributed you had a set of protocols and a set of defined practices for how traffic was supposed to move and they were all distributed and it's, you know, it's the economy of the century. It's the same way, right? You have to have some sort of regulatory control, uh, but you have to apply it the right way. And you have to have a sense of what the system is doing, but you have to use that in the right way to be more responsive. So as an example, the way we permit informal transportation, at least the four wheelers, is to give them a franchise to serve a particular route. That's not actually very demand responsive, even if informal transportation is. Uh, why couldn't we develop systems that then bid out where the demand is, right? So what happens is that I pay, if I'm an operator, I pay an annual franchise fee to serve this route. I can only serve this route. But if we did it digitally, is there a way for to say the payments are daily? depending on demand and government could shift and, and say, or the system could shift and say, there's a lot of demand in this area at this particular time. If you want to serve that area, here's the thing you need to pay today right now to be able to serve that. Conversely, you could say this area is really not served well, even if there is demand or there's not enough demand, can we pay the, the operators to use to serve that area so that we then improve it? So it, it's not that there is no management function is that you have to rethink the management function and how these systems integrate digitally. If that wasn't sort of challenging enough, we have the whole kind of drive towards net zero and electrification and, yeah. and managing our emissions as well. So how, how do we do that? How do cities do that over the course of the next decade as we try and move towards sort of net zero places? So here's a really interesting thing. I was with a futures workshop with a large multilateral bank and a large, uh, very forward-looking engineering firm. These are global players. And the subject was resilient transportation. And they were talking about the large infrastructure investments they wanted to make in cities in the global south would probably take five years to plan and 10 years to execute, right? And what, how do you make it green and sustainable? Uh, there was hardly any talk about auto rickshaws and vans and minibuses, which was already your existing transportation system, which already have resilience in their, their DNA because they have to survive. So then the question is, so how do you make that system green and resilient? And I would bet it would be uh, cheaper and faster to deploy if you acknowledge it in policy and you're willing to put resources to it. 
Otherwise, you make big mistakes. This same large multilateral bank had tried to electrify three wheelers in a particular city in Southeast Asia. They were going to, to sink $300 million in it, I think, and failed in three months. And it failed for three reasons. One was there was no charging infrastructure. Second, it was too expensive. Even if it could carry more, the market didn't need that. And it couldn't go into places that were narrower. And third, the drivers knew how to repair a four-stroke or a two-stroke combustion engine. They did not know how to repair an, an electric engine, and they didn't know where to go. Right. So a lot of it is thinking about the system that's already there and how do you convert the system. India is doing a lot of very, very interesting things in encouraging the electrification of three-wheelers. 11,000 electric three-wheelers are entering the market every month, and they have already have 1.5 million electric three-wheelers across India out of an estimated 10 to 12 million auto rickshaws that serve its cities. So there's a very rapid change going on with the right incentives. Part of it is uh, instead of charging infrastructure, what they have is are swappable batteries. The companies like Gogoro, which came out of Taiwan and Malaysia and Sun Mobility, create these kiosks where you pull out a battery and replace the battery in your three-wheeler. And that's way faster, right? You don't have to plug it in and charge. And it has a membership model. So really rethinking it. And so going back to your question, it could go very, very rapidly if you think of it in terms of these network and agent effects. The other is that we have to acknowledge that they actually have lower vehicle miles traveled per capita. So they're actually already greener and making them efficient would actually green the system better. But they're polluting, so and they serve lower-income, middle-income areas. If you don't green the vehicles, then you're consigning those neighborhoods to the pollution that it generates. We think that informal transportation could be a very powerful lever to decarbonizing the transportation systems of the planet, which generate about a third of our uh, carbon in the world. Uh, what, here's what's interesting. We have some national, some urban estimates of how, what informal transportation generates, but we don't have global estimates, which then goes back again to how this sector is neglected, even despised in planning. Where do we start? Where are you? What's keeping you awake at night? Where are you focusing your energy? Whose minds are you trying to change? What we're trying to do in Global Partnership for Informal Transportation is elevate the sector to say, this is your transportation system. And they do serve the people you want to serve. Don't imagine that you will formalize them into some centralized company or set of companies, but think about how you are going to transform them by working with the people who already operate it, by thinking about how do you make them financially sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable, and thinking about the people who actually use them so that you understand the uses and where they go uh, and what they serve. And once you start that, you can encourage the right technologies, you can find the innovations and scale those innovations or give them the right framework for innovations. Here's an example, right? The market for small public transportation vehicles has been around for decades. In the 80s, some of the big car companies tried to invest in it with encouragement from governments. The one problem was when governments encouraged the operators to buy these new vehicles, they did but they weren't financially sustainable, so they wouldn't replace the vehicles the way the car companies wanted the replacement cycle to be. So rather than replacing them after five years and buying a new one, they couldn't afford it. They would keep the vehicle running for as long as they could, which meant there was no market for the car companies. 
if you rethought that and you started with the financial sustainability of the operators, then you would then generate a market for the car companies who would then manufacture these vehicles. The other thing is to approach it not as single vehicles, but these are DIY kits, right? Can we do that? The, the jeepney and the auto rickshaw emerged from innovating existing vehicles and existing parts. So let's tap that. So say a bit more about that. The innovation comes from sort of hacking the existing infrastructure. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, the, so there were jitneys before World War II, even in places like London had its jitneys. And they were like the cars, but they were rejiggered so that they could carry six or eight people more, right? And then after World War II in the Philippines, uh, in Manila, guess what there were a lot of? There were leftover World War II equipment. The military jeeps were available. And so people rejiggered them so that then they could carry 12 people, six to a side, then eight people. And then some people then manufactured their own versions of it. And that became the jeepney. The three-wheelers that eventually became the, the tuk-tuk in Southeast Asia and the auto rickshaw in India came from a vehicle called the Mazda Go 3 that was manufactured in Japan in the 1910s. And they exported about 20,000 of them as part of their soft diplomacy before World War II into Southeast Asia. It was a little cargo vehicle. And then a, a guy in Thailand uh, took that and converted it into the auto rickshaw that we know today and continued to manufacture it. In India, another guy took the same model, brought it to Piaggio, and started manufacturing these three-wheelers. Same thing in Pakistan. There's a three-wheeler called the Chingchi. Uh, and it's called Chingchi because the brand of motorcycle that they import from China is Chingchi. And they take the motorcycle, take the last wheel out, and add a little carriage in the back, right? So that it can carry five to six people. So there's a lot of innovation and ingenuity that goes into these vehicles. So why can't we tap that? Yeah, that's really interesting. So Liminal, the community that I'm part of, we've done a lot of work in the last 18 months around net zero cities. So we've worked with a number of different places around getting to carbon zero. And the other is around making the commercial case for investment in low income communities, in particular in South Africa, but also in other uh, and in townships and rural areas in South Africa, but also elsewhere. Uh, to try and persuade businesses to invest uh, in low-income communities, not just because it's a good thing to do, but because it's uh, you know there's a commercial opportunity that sits there as well. And it sounds that that is both of those things, the kind of net zero cities, and but also the the commercial case for investment in this case in the informal transportation uh, economy uh, are linked there. So I'm just curious whether the people listening to this podcast and the people part of our community might be connected to opportunities or entrepreneurs or um, around the world that, that might be helpful in some way. So I, I guess my question is, how can we help or, or what, what challenges are you currently grappling with where you'd like the creativity and ideas of the people that might be listening to this, this podcast? One of the things I learned from working with uh, Shaq in Slum Dwellers International, which is an amazing organization, they federated out of India and are now in, I think, 30 plus countries around the world. Uh, one of the things they say is the first step to inclusion is to be counted. And we don't actually have good counts of informal transportation, the number of operators, where they serve, uh, who they serve, and what they do. So part of the work is to both map and acknowledge the entrepreneurship and innovation that's going on and to provide scaffolding for that or support to it. Rather than investments from big companies might be good, but might, what might be even better is helping the existing entrepreneurs become more sustainable with the right kind of policy supports 
and the right kinds of, of even recognition of what the service is. And then uh, this is a thing I always talk to about when talking about informality in cities, right? Um, if you've ever visited an informal settlement and the first thing, if the first thing you notice is how bad housing is, then you try to solve that housing. And usually to, what you try to do is build housing where it's cheap, which is in the periphery. And if you don't notice the amount of business that goes on in informal settlements, then you lose out on seeing how many stores there are and businesses and all of that. And if we reframed our approaches to, to say, how do we make those businesses even more successful? Then our interventions would be very, very different. Mm. There's this really great essay by Herbs, which is uh, based out of India, on when Tokyo was a slum. And it's in a publication called Next City. Mm. And if you look at the fine grain of Tokyo, both in its built environment, that was reflected in the fine grain of its uh, manufacturing supply. There's lots of small companies. Uh, supplying even bigger companies. In fact, by the research, it's something like 28% of the export economy that was Tokyo came out of very small companies that were existed in the city. And acknowledging that rather than centralizing it all and tying them all and making them sustainable into these supply chains mm. would do a lot, right? So if you visit Daravi, which is the largest sum in Mumbai, it exports leather products to the Middle East. Right, mm. so there's it's already there, and we just need to find it, name it, account for it, and make it a creature in our policies and our investments, and stop trying to brush them aside. That again, going back to what uh, slum welders say, right? The first step to inclusion is to be counted. Thank you, Benjamin. I really enjoyed that and was struck by what he said about mobility being a basic human right and that the first step to inclusion is to be counted and that informal transport can be a powerful lever to decarbonize the planet. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed listening too. And if you'd like to find out more about Benjamin, then I'll share some links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems of sustainability and inequality. Our community and this podcast is supported by our patrons and so I'd particularly like to welcome our latest community member, Eleanor Ford. Thanks again to all of you for your support and participation. To find out more about Liminal or our community, please visit www.weareliminal.co. Before I go, please can I ask that you like and subscribe to this podcast or share it to others who you think might like it as well. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on informally connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.